few and to uh, have to face up to the fact that a uh, passage on hell is the one that I chose last week to preach from a video. I thought that was strategically done because there could have been a lot of questions coming out of that, and I deftly decided to just move out of the way and let you wonder about all those things. And instead, I thought I'd come back and preach a passage on divorce, because that's much less troublesome, obviously. Now, guys, I bring greetings, I guess, from my parents down in uh, North Carolina. That's where we were last week. Thanks for being willing. Ryan said it wasn't all that different, having to hear from, uh, from me on the screens rather than from me here. Um, I'm going to try not to take that personally, but, you know. Oh, okay. Well, there we are. All right. Well, the good news is I've just recorded this week's as well, so let's just watch. Now, I, I do want to dive into a couple things that uh, came out of the end of last week's message. So if you weren't here last week, sorry, we are going to do just a little bit of tidying up from that. So let me read to you from the context, because as we enter into chapter 10, remember, all of this has come. Uh, these, these are not standalone things. We do them week by week. But Mark has written them out in, in a real progression, and he means for these things to be thought of in order, thought of in context, and thought of with, with relationship to what you've just read. Uh, but more than that, Jesus has been actively teaching and shaping not just the crowds, but really the disciples. And that's what's going to happen here in uh, chapter 10 as well. Uh, but let's, let's just look backwards for a minute here at uh, chapter 9. And at the end of that text, remember last week we heard that there were two main dangers as we're trying to walk with Jesus on this path of discipleship. Uh, the first is that we would forget about the influence we can have on others. The second is we can forget about the influence that things we've thought are vital to us actually have on us. So Jesus said it's, it's better if you're going to lead a little one to sin uh, to just wrap a millstone around your neck and just jump into the sea. Uh, that would be better than if you're going to screw with and mess with the thinking and the faith of those that are impressionable in your lives. The second thing that he said, though, was if you think it's better to live your life for all of your comforts and advantages here, and those comforts and advantages lead you on the path to hell, you are vastly deceived. Because it would be far better to cripple yourself here in order to be able to make it where you want to go, which is through the context of eternal life. He said this in verse 47 then, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If you remember from last week, we had this chart kind of laid out that helped us understand the flow of the text. Then in verse 49, he said this, and this is wonderfully um, helpful, I guess. I uh, said, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. One of the things they say when you're preaching is to make sure that your illustration and your analogy and your, you know, if you're going to tell a story, make sure it fits where you're trying to go. And I think Jesus just flat out ignores that rule with the way that he talks about salt at the end of all this. Because on one hand, he says, hey, the destiny of those of you who live for your comfort in this life is hell. The word he uses references a valley outside Jerusalem, which basically is just an eternal burning trash pit. I say eternal, not in the sense that the fire is going to go on forever, but it, this just never stopped. It was just this ongoing, constant fire outside. 
Jesus also then references this passage in Isaiah 66. Listen to it in context. He says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many, the dead bodies who have rebelled against me. And here's the phrase. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's pointing to a present day reference point, this burning trash pit. He's also referring to a Old Testament context of what Jesus says, or what God had said through Isaiah. And you think of everything that God said in Isaiah, right? 66 chapters, and this is the 66th chapter. So after everything of Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, Isaiah 53, and the suffering servant, he still ends with a pretty severe warning, saying that God's God's coming judgment is going to feel like some of the worst destruction you can think of, and that's what it would be like to be caught on fire and burned. That's kind of the way he talks about this in Isaiah 66. Jesus then referencing God's judgment for those who would decide forget about anything in the future. I want to be comfortable now, no matter what it costs in my relationship with Christ, and no matter what impression I leave with those who are watching me. He says, all right, let's reference a Roman judgment, uh, drowning. He also says, and he takes that to the most severe, by the way. It's not just any millstone. The millstone he references is like really big millstone. So a severe drowning, a, a very intense drowning, which you're still drowning, but he's just sort of accenting the point of how badly you're going to drown and how you're not going to get away from it. And then the way that, if you remember the chart from last week, he talks about hell, hell, hell. And then at the end, he peppers it with this Old Testament text that says, remember how dead those bodies are, those dead bodies that have rebelled against me, where this fire that's going on couldn't be quenched and the worm won't die, meaning The worm is going to eat these things up completely. There's just a picture of total and unavoidable destruction for those that are rebelling against God. But the rebellion against God isn't as defiant as you see in all the other contexts. It doesn't have to do with, you know, idolatry. It doesn't have to do with child sacrifice. It has to do with making sure your life is as comfortable as it could be in the here and now. That should scare us. It should scare us as 21st century Western Christians because comfort is the inviolable rule of our culture. Our right and our right to be happy and comfortable now is the inviolable rule that if you ever begin to question it, oh, it's, like, it's like you're pushing back against, you're slaughtering this, the sacred cow of U.S. life. And, and Jesus is saying, I, I don't think so. Because to be comfortable now, if it led you to your destruction, is not preferable to a crippled life now, an intentionally crippled life now, that then actually leads you to eternal life. So just understand, that's the context in which Jesus is talking about these topics. These aren't suggestions. This isn't just like, hey, life's going well now. I just want to show you how to better it. 
Instead, he's saying it's very possible you're leading yourself in a comfortable way to your own death and destruction. You're doing it through all these means that you've considered to be normal, and I'm very, very concerned about that. And right next to that topic, then, we read about divorce. But salt first, for a brief second. So back to Mark 9, verse 50 he said, sorry, verse 49, he said, for everyone will be salted with fire. In that sense, salt's talking about what's happening in hell, and that's bad. But then he turns around in verse 50, and he says, now salt is good. And what he says in 50 and 51 might remind you of what you've heard actually more in like the Sermon on the Mount, because that's probably the more popular way that Jesus talks about saltiness, and you've heard about it that way, and that sort of thing. He's kind of referencing that, and I just got to be honest. Frankly, I really don't know what Mark is doing at the end of verse 9. That's kind of the only honest way. And I'm not saying that because I didn't read any commentaries. I did. And I'm not sure they entirely know what Jesus is doing. They're saying, obviously, Jesus is making a connection between how seriously the penalty of hell hangs over what he's been talking about and how seriously he wants them to think about where he lands in verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. If nothing else, what it should do is it should remind us that the topics Jesus is addressing has to do with our eternal destiny and our eternal joy. And that it is impossible to ignore God over the context of our lives here and now and expect to enjoy God into the future. That is not an association we can make. The way we live in the here and now has eternal consequences. And Mark isn't letting us forget those. He's using salt in a way that I don't totally get. But that's the obvious point he's making, is that this concept of how we live among ourselves and how we treat each other has a lot to do with what we're going to enjoy forever. Does that leave you with questions? Yes, but let's move on. So... What happens then as we turn into chapter 10 is that Jesus begins to address, and Mark links together these two things. Remember, Mark is writing this intentionally. These are not just random stories. These are not Aesop's fables, and these are not like Proverbs, for instance, where there's not always context. Proverbs just come one after another. Sometimes you see context and flow. Sometimes it just looks really random. Mark is never Random. You understand what he's about to talk about, what he's put next, is really deliberate in his mind. And what we see in the passage that Barb just read, verses 1 through 9, and what's going to come after that in kind of 10 through 16, or 13 through 16, it has a lot to do with this basic question. How do we, as a Christian community, how do we, as the people of God, treat those that the world dismisses? Now, Ryan's already given away the end of the sermon. We're going to hear from Jim and Tony Kay. But we're going to hear from Jim. He's going to represent Tony Kay, who's representing Esperanza de Ana, who's representing, really, the, plead of, or the pleas of the nation of Peru. So he's got a big task ahead of him, and that's where we're going to get to. But what I want to do in setting him up is to ask this question, and it's a broad one. Does God care for the people that the world dismisses? Does he really? Or... Have the world's values affected the way that we think? And then do people see the way that we think and think, oh, that's what God thinks? I'll give you the answer to that. Yes. That's what's happening. 
What's happening is that the world is dismissing, it's ranking people and dismissing some. The church is learning from the world, and then the world is watching the church and saying, oh, God agrees with us. That's just bunk, according to Jesus. And so we really need a passage like this to re-educate us so that we can shine in a culture that dismisses others in the way that God wants us to shine so that those who've been dismissed are actually seen as valuable. The first category, and the topic is divorce, but the first category of people that God does not dismiss is women. So listen to what Jesus says, and we'll start again in verse 1. It says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So the first category we're getting here in chapter 10 is these crowds that have gathered all around. And Jesus is beginning to teach. We don't hear anything about what he's teaching. What we hear is the trick that comes into the the, the whole context. The Pharisees came, trying to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So let's just remember, I got some help here from, uh, from Donald English on this. It's so good, I made you wait for a drink. Here comes his quote. He said, if a general crowd is the audience, then what is more natural than to try out this new teacher on a thorny topic like marriage and divorce? If there were Pharisees present, then such a question would provide evidence in the dossier against him, since the words tested him in verse 2 mean out to try out the defenses. The aim is to get him to say something clearly contrary to the accepted norms of the time. Can you relate to that pressure just a little bit? In a cancel culture like ours, we can think this is massively unique. Oh my goodness, we're always being asked to try out these thorny topics. And why is this happening to us in our day? And we read a passage like this and realize like, oh, we're following Jesus. And actually it happened to him all the time. The question of whether or not he was going to say something clearly contrary to accepted norms is what's behind this idea of them coming and asking a question that says, hey, Jesus, What do you think about this? Because we want to know if you're acceptable to us. For those of us who have been around Jesus for a while, we realize that's never the question, is it? It's never the question of whether we make Jesus palatable to us every time we come into an evaluation with Jesus. The question is always, is our life, as it's being evaluated by him, acceptable to him? In other words, Jesus is going to take a time like this where he's being tested and instead use it as an evaluation of those that have come to talk to him. In fact, though, the Pharisees probably haven't been studying too much of what's been happening up to this point in Mark chapter 10, because before this in Mark 9, we we heard these things, right? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Children, not valuable. Jesus, ultimately valuable, and he's linking the two. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, again, not the most noble of tasks, but Jesus is elevating it. He's taking a child, elevating it. He's taking, giving a cup of water, elevating its significance. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, whoa, okay. So the little things that I do in life can have radical consequences that are millstone-like. Jesus is asking these kind of, or he's making these points, but he's using this key word, whoever this, whoever this, whoever this. Listen to the way he says it again. He says then, this is going to be his answer in verse 11. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. 
Interesting way that he's going to answer. Or then later on, when we're talking about children, he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, the broad question is being answered. Does Jesus care? Does God care for the ones that the world dismisses? The resounding answer already has been yes. And so when the Pharisees are coming and saying, well, let's try out this topic of women, because that's tricky, Jesus is not about to be evaluated or tested. It's not going to go badly for him. It is about to go very, very poorly for the Pharisees, though. Because what they have forgotten is that though they want to sort of capitalize on this moment and, and make Jesus look bad in front of the crowds, Jesus is going to let them know, I'm so sorry, your hardness of heart has been the problem forever. And that's what's caused you to dismiss the ones that the world values, or that, that, that God values. And so the question, let's just look at it again there in verse 2, says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, he answered them, and he starts with where they started, the law. He answered, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, well, it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. Now, what Jesus is referring, and I'm going to skip a slide here for a second, Michael. I'll come back to, to Mark 10. What he's referring to is in Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 2, reads this way. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, keywords indecency there, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, this is the, this is the first context for what had become the, the Jewish tradition, the Pharisaical tradition over this entire topic. So, a way of thinking about this might be to think about, uh, because there, there is provision here for what would be indecent, and the context of Scripture really gives us a great example of this, and it's in the beginning when we were in Luke, remember, um, with, um, uh, with Joseph and with Mary. We read that Joseph was righteous and that he was planning to put Mary away secretly. Now, why was he doing that? It was because she has been found with child. Joseph knew, well, I, I was not the father of this child. Therefore, Mary clearly has been unfaithful. And that seems to be what the scripture and Luke at the time says. That would have been a, that would have an appropriate use of Deuteronomy 24. This indecency would refer to sexual immorality outside that had broken the covenant before the covenant really even was getting going in Joseph's case. And Joseph's righteousness is that he wasn't trying to expose her. He wasn't trying to put her out there. He wasn't trying to proclaim his innocence. He was going to do this all very quietly. And yet, it wasn't the purity of that commandment that had arrived on Jesus' doorstep here as he's teaching the crowds. What they bring is a whole other context. Now, this is from the Mishnah Gatin, and I am quoting this. I do not know this document well, but essentially a Gatin was the context in the part of the Mishnah, which was the traditions that had been all passed down, trying to interpret verses like Deuteronomy 24, uh, that was asking questions of, so what then? How does this work? Where does this fit? What does that indecency word really, really mean? And so um, in the Mishnah Gatim, from the, the Seder Nashim, which is about women generally, um, it, it, this, these are two quotes out of that. It says, Bet Hillel, meaning the house of Hillel, those who follow this rabbi named Hillel, 
say he may divorce her even due to a minor issue, for example, because she burned or oversalted his dish. As it is stated, because he has found some unseemly matter in her, meaning that he found any type of shortcoming in her. Lofty standard, isn't it? So in other words, Hillel and all of his followers decided to say that what seems to have meant sexual immorality that violated a covenant could actually mean some poor culinary choices And it even gets worse because Rabbi Akiva from the Mishnah says he may divorce her even if he found another woman who is better looking than her and wishes to marry her, as it is stated in that verse. And as it comes to pass, if she finds no favor in his eyes. So you see that indecency has been taken out of the context of sexual immorality. It's been thrown into issues of how you cook and even how you look. That's what it could mean for a man to be the evaluator of a woman and to determine whether she should be worthy of a getin. She would be worthy of a, of a get. Sorry, getin's plural. Um, and I'm sure Michael will help us on the Hebrew with this much later on. So there's something I've said later. Michael will help me and I'll put that into the email. But that said, you get the, you get the, the guts of what Jesus is facing here. What they're asking is, not do we get to do this, but under what context do I get to do this? Or more twistedly, or the way that Jesus diagnoses it, more hard-heartedly, what is the standard I have to hold to before I can trade up? It's become despicable. And frankly, these are the kind of laws you would have expected from the Romans. I mentioned over the last couple of weeks that the church, though it's taken a lot of lumps, has really done far more good. And Ryan and I were talking about this, and he was saying he's listening to a book. Uh, he's listened to it on tape, so he didn't give me a quote. I was begging him for a quote, um, but he wasn't memorizing it while he was listening, so he didn't have one ready for me. But I want to find it, and I want to find a couple references to this, because he said in this book, what, he was, uh, what this author was doing, non-Christian author was doing, is saying, hey, Christianity's had a, a, a far better you know, effect on the world than we really think. Because in the, in the Roman times, if you were more rich or more powerful, then everybody was viewed that was less rich and less powerful, they were viewed as some subset of your property. And so they could be used for all of your labor force that would re- involve women and children, but they could also be used for your sexual, you know, favors, essentially. And so there would be nothing in Roman times that would have found that to be indecent. It would have been completely allowable. We, anybody today, generally would see that as a complete like violation of the rights of women and children. And so the author of this book is saying, hey, Christianity's done a lot more good, even if, though people dismiss God, and even though be, people use Jesus' name as a curse word, Christianity's had a far greater influence on the world than, we, than we're getting credit for today. Because I, I, when I read that out of the Mishnah, I would think, man, that sounds like Roman laws. These were Jewish laws. These were Jewish teachings. And these are, the, these are the heroes of the Jewish faith coming to Jesus to test him and saying, what do I have to do to be able to trade up on my wife? That's what's kind of behind all this. And that's where Jesus then hears these kinds of questions and listen to his response then in verse 6. He says, but from the beginning of creation... 
God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's in the context of the crowd. This is where Barb stopped her reading, because I asked her to, not because, you know, she neglected anything here. Listen to what happens right afterwards then in verse 10. It says then, and in the house, so we've left the crowd, and now Jesus is private with his disciples. The disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, keywords, against her. It's against her. Her rights are being violated when this process is happening countless times out in society. These pigs, these hard-headed pigs that have come to me asking what they get to do to trade up. What can they do? What's the minimum uh, limits for how they can dismiss their wives? What is it that needs to happen? These are the ones, Jesus is saying, that are completely ignoring this. And in the process, they are violating the rights of their wives. They're committing adultery against her. And then, verse 12, not even the question. The question is, what can a man do against his wife? Jesus then gives the woman the same amount of like authority and says, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Both of those statements to the disciples would have set them back, rocked them back into their heels. And just so you know, teaser, that's what's coming up. Jesus is going to keep teaching the disciples in ways that rock them backwards and surprise them over and over. Just read ahead in verse 10, or chapter 10, you'll see. But here he's saying what happens in this process that you've just watched, it is violating the rights of a woman. And women have the same capacity ultimately to make the kind of decisions that men do. But if they do this, they're not they're not getting more like, you know, noble in God's eyes. We're just giving them the right to commit the same kind of atrocity that men would be committing against women. And just as a sidebar, that's what progress in society today is looking like. The church is calling for marital purity. The world is calling for equal rights at indecency and impurity. So let's not get rid of pornography. Let's empower women in pornography. And the church ought to be just listening to this and going, what? What What are you talking about? The way to value value women and to elevate women in society is by increasing purity in society, not by giving more women more opportunities to be impure. But that's the culture that we live in, guys. And it's not new. Just get this through our heads. Yes, we are watching some things get devalued, but it's like, it's, (laughs) this is 2,000 years old and it was happening then. Let's just understand, we're not in some unique moment in history where things have just gotten so bad that, oh my goodness, we just have to throw our arms and escape. Christians have been battling this stuff for millennia. Let's just keep battling this stuff today. Hmm? All right, so... Jesus has said to the disciples, this is what's going on. Again, Donald English helps us understand verses 10 through 12. He says, as always, Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter, God's will and purpose for the law. Side note, if you want to just think about this, go read Matthew 5, verses 21 through 48. That's the, hey, 
You give and you do it loudly. Jesus says, do it this way. Also, not just in your positive stuff, but in your negative stuff, you say that you just, you don't kill. Yeah, what about getting angry? You say you don't commit adultery. What about lust? Jesus is always elevating the standards that are presented to him. And so, continuing back, the point is not the interpretation of become displeasing, nor the provision for a certificate of divorce, nor what should happen if she remarries and subsequently is divorced. Yes, those are the topics, but that's not the point. The point and the real question is the positive one, namely, what did God intend by giving marriage in the first place? And for the answer, you notice he doesn't quote Akiva, he doesn't quote Hillel, he quotes himself, technically. And he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. He continues, God's original purpose was clear, lifelong faithfulness between a man and a woman in marriage. We should note beyond this that Jesus introduces a new category in the sharp words of verse 11, that of a man's guilt of adultery against a woman, which was not a normal normal line of cultural reasoning at this point in time. Three points I want us to see from this. First point is this. Jesus wants us to remember that he has created in his image and came near to restore his image equally in both men and women. Remember, Jesus could have said anything he wanted. He starts by saying, you guys are so hard-hearted. Now, let me remind you and quote scripture. First scripture he quotes is that God made man in his image, male and female. Meaning that male and female are the categories in which which people are created. That has a lot to do with some conversations today. But secondly, that they are both equally made in his image, which I think is the point he's trying to get to here. We need to remember this. We need to remember that in a church context, then, that women are not sort of trying to be made into the image of men. That sounds like a weird concept to make, but we've got to remember we read a book in which people are often called men. Right? We read a book, New Testament letters, where in the original sort of address, it's to brothers. Uh, Likely we ought to hear that as brothers and sisters. But it can leave us with this sort of side effect, trying to honor Scripture, can lead us with a side effect of thinking in some weird ways that, that men have a little bit more of an upper hand and that women ought to be brought up to that image, which, like I just said, kind of repeats the mistakes the world's making in some ways. First thing we got to remember is that men and women are both equally made in the image of God and Jesus came to restore the image of God in men and women, which means that at the end of the day, there'll be men and women. Make sense? So does God care for those the world dismisses? Does God care for the women the world dismisses? Point one Jesus is making is, yes, they were made valuable and therefore you can't treat them like they're not. Second point we need to remember kind of coming out of this is that Jesus wants us to remember that the unity that takes place within marriage, within the marriage context, is more significant than even family ties. These familial ties seem to us like, okay, that just means that, you know, if your wife and your mother-in-law are having a you know, a little bit of a dispute or, you know, flipping it around. If, you're, if your husband and your father-in-law are having a little bit of dispute, try not to side with your mom. Try not to side with your dad. That's, that's not a good way to go. That, no. In this kind, and it does mean that, by the, by the way, all right? 
But it means far more than that, particularly whenever, um, you know, my dad was in HR, works for Westinghouse, and Westinghouse, though it doesn't exist, in its, uh, its forms and functions and the way that my dad was compensated, just so you know, they don't care about me at all because I don't work for them. And I can't go to them and say, but my name's Lander. And they're like, oh, sorry, welcome. Westinghouse is at your disposal. But it's not the way it works because we don't build our economy around families. But in this context, the economy and the family were so intimately tied together that what Jesus is pointing out is that this unity that God creates in marriage is more important than the very fabric of your society that you think is what's going to get you further in life. So when he's saying, pull away from mom and dad and join yourself over here, he's not saying that we're going to disrupt a family context and that a, you know, that a, a, a carpenter like Jesus' dad couldn't train Jesus to be a carpenter as well, but that if Jesus were to have gotten married, that that union would have been more important than he would have had with Joseph. That's the point Jesus is making right here. It may be speculative, but it's also possible that what Jesus is getting at here is that there would be times that a family might pressure a man to divorce his wife in this context. And so part of the reason that Jesus is pointing out that unity, remember, he could have quoted anything he wanted from the Old Testament. He quoted that verse in 27, and then he quoted that little chunk from chapter 2. And in reminding us that the unity that takes place in marriage is more significant than even all of our familial ties, he may be pushing back on that, you know, kind of contextual pressure that what mom or dad wants you to do ought to influence and shape how you dismiss and devalue your current wife. And I say current because that was the context of what was going on. The third thing Jesus wants us to remember here, I think, is that the trauma of our divorcing is contrary to his original intentions and is caused by hard-heartedness, which is at the core of why he came. This is where talking about divorce uh, is so very difficult. Because the experience I've had with divorce has come through this lens. I know there's a lot of other ways to get divorced. The experience that I've had with divorce in my role here has often come like this. Um, A man acts very unfaithfully, makes life very difficult for a woman, but doesn't have the courage in order to initiate a divorce after he's already broken the covenant. Therefore, she has to take steps to protect herself. And now she's under a condemnation of why did I have to divorce him, especially if this guy is now saying, oh, you divorced me, therefore you're violating God's word. Because remember, God hates divorce. Does he? Yeah. Point three, the trauma of our divorcing is contrary to his original tensions. But what's so difficult about it, moments like that that I've had to witness is that there's all this condemnation now laid over this lady who's saying, I was just trying to have a normal life after you'd ruined it, and I'm not sure exactly how to take these steps, but you broke our covenant. You didn't have any courage in order to be able to acknowledge that point, and that's left me with this enormous weight of responsibility and guilt. And I think the point that I, want, that I would want Jesus, you to hear as Jesus is making this point I think there was a roundabout way of saying this. God feels the pain you're feeling. 
It bothers him more than it bothers you, but not because he's looking at you and saying, why didn't you keep this thing together? Why didn't you make this work? Why couldn't you just have overlooked his indiscretions in such a way that you could have pretended that a marriage still exists, even though he was shredding it with action after action and word after word and abuse after abuse? Why is it you couldn't have held this together? That's, <laughs> that's not the way that God's looking at those. He's looking and saying, this bothers me like it bothers you but more so because I know what this was supposed to be. And it didn't work. And I'm grieving with you over your loss. I'm grieving with you over what you've had to endure. This is, and I'm using this word, I know it's a word thrown around a lot, but this is a trauma that can mess with so many ways that are thinking. And Jesus is, I think, supporting women that have endured abuse by looking at them and saying, this, this isn't because of you. It's because of his hard-heartedness. That's why, looking at all the women in the first century and every woman who's been abused, every woman who's been divorced in similar contexts since then, he's saying, I, I think, I don't think I'm reading words to Jesus here. He's saying, this was not what I wanted for you in the first place. That said, I think divorce is, and this is why I've called it this way, it's, I think it's a misunderstood, um, I think it's a misunderstood protection. By the time Jesus came around, there were so many ways that I think people were expected to get divorced if their marriages weren't working out. That's what had happened to this law over time. This law that God had put in place was because Jesus is is explaining that Moses put this in place because, generally speaking, the men of his day were incredibly hard-hearted. Had that hard-heartedness changed from back when it was penned to when Jesus is being questioned? It doesn't seem so. It doesn't seem so at all. And despite that, he put a law in place to protect them Because before that law, they were able to be dismissed out of hand. The whole giving of a certificate of divorce, what was called the get, was a way of protecting a woman so that somebody else could know, oh, you are legally been separated. It's not as though you're still married. You've legally been sort of sent out, and now you can be protected in another household. This was ultimately what God was giving, not to make things easier for men, but to make it protective for the women who were being dismissed. There's a whole other sermon on this one point, I think, and we need to have a, a time to be able to think it through. But it does remind us that things in the law are laws for context, not laws that are just, you know, completely eternal that represent what God wants. In other words, in this particular case, the Pharisees are saying, okay, so God's okay with divorce, right? And Jesus is saying, no, no, he's really not. But he's dealing with hard-hearted people that were dismissing women and treating them absolutely horribly, and so he protected them in that context. That has to shape the way we read the Old Testament at times so that we understand what God is getting at. That's what Jesus is kind of doing. Make sense? All right, so those are three points that I think we need to kind of look at this, this passage, understand a little bit more, both what Jesus is saying in the crowd when he's being tested and what he explains to the disciples But it should leave us with one question. This is a question for our evaluation. Do we grieve over 
and seek to undo ongoing elements of our culture and practice that leave women feeling less valuable than men. And every one of us has to evaluate that question in terms of just broad things, jokes that you tell and listen to. I remember when I was growing up, blonde jokes were just the joke, right? You know what blonde jokes were never about? Blonde men. And I knew a lot of dumb blonde men. But blonde jokes were always about women. And we would tell and laugh about them. And I think about that now, and I think that gave the impression that women are dumber than men. We have to think about our heroes, the people that we applaud. And I'm not going to make this about the Browns, but Mike, I won't be rooting for the Browns on the 11th. I can't. I grew up a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Dad's listening, and Dad knows that when Ben Roethlisberger was accused of sexual assault and the Pittsburgh Steelers dismissed it and tried to reduce what happened, I said, Dad, I can't continue to pull for the Steelers. This is me. I'm just talking about me. I'm not saying that if any of you want to root for the Browns that you can't. But I am saying we should be careful about the heroes that we choose, especially if we want to agree with what God is saying. We should, we should be careful about the stories that we tell. We should be careful about the way we assign blame. Why should a woman have to hear, why did you stay with him so long? Rather than, why was he doing this in the first place? Beyond that, as a church, especially when we think about a passage that comes in a a context that's male-dominated, we are at a church where elders are men. And we uh, we honor what we think is a passage of Scripture that that ought to be applied across time, that the ultimate leaders in a church, ultimate human leaders, are to be men and not women. There's a side effect that comes with that. It's that guys know best. This impression that guys know best and guys make all their decisions on their own. We started talking about this a while ago, kind of in the midst of the pandemic. And frankly, and uh, to, to my error, we have not followed up on this, but we've wanted to create context where both men and women could give a lot of feedback on what's going on in the church. We haven't created those contexts. It gives the impression that only the elders know what's going on. And frankly, if, you're, if you talk to one of the elders, we know we don't know what's going on. But we act like it when we don't create these other forums. And that's a mistake we've made, and we want to undo it. We need to ask these questions. Do we grieve over and seek to undo ongoing elements of our culture and practice that leave women feeling less valuable than men? Second thing that we want to do, though, is not just ask questions about women that are being dismissed, but we're going to revisit a little bit of an uh, an older theme that's come up here, and that's the question of whether God cares for those that are dismissed in the world, and particularly the children. So the second point, if the first point was that we have this misunderstood protection of divorce that was being poorly applied, the second point that I want us to think about is God's unearned kingdom. And so that I make space for Jim and for the video, I'm going to be trying to be a little bit more brief on this. But I've told Jim that we are not going to end today at 1130. It'll probably be closer to noon so that he can talk for a while. He said he's not going to, but we're going to want to encourage him to share a little bit more. So let me start with you at verse 13 so you can see how context kind of fits. It says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Again, I'm going to skip a slide, Mike, and we're just going to jump ahead to the references in Mark. Listen to the way the word touch has been used across the board. 
He healed, he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. She said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. Whenever he came in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. This is the way Mark uses the word touch. You see what the disciples are doing by saying no? They're saying the poor, the sick, the needy, this thing we've been doing where Jesus can come and touch and heal, that's for adults only. The kids don't get that benefit. That's what it means when they're saying that he might touch them and disciples rebuke them. Verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children, or sorry, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does, not, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The reason God cares for children is because adults don't get into the kingdom. That's a little bit too probably truncated of a point. But you get what God's saying. Just so you know, in a little bit, he's going to say the rich don't get into the kingdom or they get in through the hardest of squeezing efforts. But here he's saying, adults, you the mature, you the independent, you who don't need anything, you who have accomplished so much, if that's your attitude, you've got nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Kids who don't care about qualifications, kids who don't seem to care about anything except for the, what they want from you, Kids who haven't really sort of learned to figure out that we're, we do life as an exchange of favors. You give me this and I give you this. Kids haven't learned that mindset at all. Kids live with the expectation of grace. And Jesus is saying, yes, that's it. That's the way you come to God. It's like these little guys. Best sermon point I've made is let them come. Because that's the way you come to God. More than that, he's not just saying that's the way they come to me, the itinerant preacher, or to me, the one who's been a carpenter, or to me, the you know, folksy guy who tells some parables and stuff like that. He's saying this is the way you come to me, the king. The phrase he uses is, again, used repetitively. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed around. What can we compare to the kingdom of God? I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. You want that? Oh, yes, I do. What do I have to do in order to get that kingdom? Well, you've got to go to college. You've got to get a job. You've got to be respectable. You probably ought to make sure that other people like the way that you... you, What do you have to do? Empty yourself of everything you just thought you have to do and come like a kid. Best illustration we often have on a Sunday is when Una thinks that worship is over and fills up here leading, and she runs up too early. It's the best thing that happens here because it's the best picture we have of what it looks like to come to God. Is she supposed to be on the stage? According to Jesus, yes. <laughs> Guys, you don't believe this. You don't believe it a lick. 
Because when you screw up, you think that you've ruined your chances with God. And when everybody else devalues you and said you're not all that important, you think you've ruined your chances with God. And when everybody else tells you you're worthless, you figure that God thinks you're worthless too. It's just the way we live because it's so ingrained into us based on the way we do life with other people. And then we read that on God and we think, oh, that's the way God feels about me. So the the question we have to ask is, what does it look like? And this is sort of a, a second question for us here. What does it look like for us at Trinity Church to receive God's kingdom like a little child does? It might mean, don't be so worried about how you look when you come to church. Because God's not really all that impressed. It might mean stop trying to sugarcoat your weaknesses and try to present the best version of yourself because that's just not working out anyway. But also, it's leaving this impression that only these kinds of people get to come to God. It could, it could mean a lot, but here's a second kind of flip side question to it. Not just what does it look like for us to receive God's kingdom, but what does it look like for us to welcome those who want to receive the kingdom of God this way? Have we created a culture that messy people want to come to because kids can be messy? Or have we created a culture where everybody realizes, no, you just have to come prim and proper. You have to look the right way. Therefore, you're accepted at Trinity Church only on those conditions. What if we, recognizing the heart of God to let us come like children, say, well, children are welcome here then too. And the last thing, and the more, I think, in some ways less metaphorical and more direct and right on the nose, what does it look like for us at Trinity Church to support and to learn from those who are caring for the children that Jesus blesses? You know, this isn't the only ministry we support, but we are excited to have Jim and Tony Kay here with us. And just, if we can, don't pay any attention to the clock. All right? So Jim's going to come up. He's going to talk to us. He's going to show us a video, then talk to us again. At the end of that time, we'll spend some time singing. So I think